0: Good morning, Fellowship Family. It's great to have you with us as we continue in our, your series, Unafraid. Uh, I've been away for three weeks and uh, went to Israel for two of those weeks and had a wedding the other week. It's great to be home. I absolutely love being home, and I just thank the Lord for the honor of sharing God's word with you this morning. We're looking at this concept and up to this point of, of fear, we've looked at the fear of death, we've looked at the fear of the unknown. Last week, Jonathan Sublett led us in a great message on racial reconciliation called the fear of those people. If you haven't listened to that, I want to encourage you to go back online. You can watch it or listen it, to it. It's a very powerful message. I, all three messages have been very powerful. Uh, the, today, I want to talk to you about the concept of the fear of failure. Fear of failure, because that's a very deep-seated fear in our lives. We deal with it almost every day. It's the fear uh, that kind of has some images attached to it that I want to kind of explore with you. When you think about failure in your own life and the fear that you have to fail, what what image comes to your mind? Uh, Some of us have that picture of disaster where you've lost it all. If you view your strength to be financial or your strength to be in your position or your salary or Or even in your accomplishments just think of what if I lose that there's fear of losing that I had a dear friend of mine who worked in a family company and he said, you know what Uh, my dad gave me this company And every morning I wake up and i'm afraid i'm gonna lose this company And so that fear just had a powerful sway and influence in his life Uh, Some of us have a picture of a recurring theme if we grew up in a family that had a theme We want to change or a history we want to rewrite and We saw the cycles and cycles of that sin or that issue or that dysfunction repeating itself We want to be a generation that makes that change. There's a problem, right? There's a problem when you see those very things you saw You you said you'd never want to see in your own life and do those things you never wanted to do You see those happening again in your life and so you're afraid that you're going to have that that's going to be in your family now and and those words kind of haunt you if you're just like your and you just fill in the blank and we all have someone in our family who we don't want to be like (laughs) and and so that can force us to have this fear of failure others of us have a picture or an image of a ruined reputation We kind of like how we have it now. We kind of want to hold that. And if there's a change, whether in legislation or change in in dynamics, in your relational status, whatever, you think, man, that respect that I once have, I no longer have. If you've changed jobs or you've got a demotion, you feel like, man, I'm no longer respected. I don't feel as valuable. I feel like a failure. People will think this about me. People will say this about me if I do that or if I say that. Or if I become like this and this keeps us on the sidelines of our faith It keeps us on the sidelines of being right in the center of where god wants us to be Others of us have a daunting reality We failed in the past and so whenever this concept comes up whenever the topic comes up We go boy. I failed in the past I just don't want to make any effort at that because it's the fear i'll fail Again, and we feel there we feel And we fear in despair. There's no way out of this. What, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. We talk to people here at church all the time who have these images of failure in our minds, and as a result of that, we aren't sharing them with anyone. We're just keeping them to ourselves, and we're we're afraid to even talk to our closest relationships. We have husbands who are fearful of failure or fearful of becoming just like their father who may have abused them or hurt them emotionally or even physically. And they're afraid of that. Happen. But they don't talk. We aren't talking about these fears. And I want to tell you that the Bible talks about these fears. And the Bible gives us space because it shares the lives of men and women who, who chose to face their fear, specifically this fear of failure, with God as well as without God. When we open up the pages of the scriptures, we find good news and we find bad news. We find people who've walked with God and we have people who are controlled by their fears and they walk by fear rather than by faith. And we have the choice, just like they did to face our fears with God or without Him. And I want to talk to you about a greater fear, even than the fear of failure. What if, as I read the scriptures, what if our greatest fear was life apart from God? What if that became our greatest fear? Because then we have an offense and a defense in talking about this. If our greatest offense is life with God, if our greatest desire and greatest pleasure is following God and loving Him and serving Him and finding our greatest delight and pleasure in Him, then our greatest fear is going to be life without Him, right? Right? If we let our greatest drive be life with God and life taking our greatest pleasure and finding our greatest joy and trusting in God, even when we don't fully know everything about what he's doing, but trusting him, what if that became our greatest trust? Well, if you have your Bibles, open with me to 2 Kings, it's in the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 18. And as you're turning, let me give you a little bit of a picture of what was happening um in this time when you ever think of kings obviously it's intuitive you're going to talk about the kings of israel and first and second kings talk about the kings of israel and judah who who um followed the lord and those who did not follow the lord those who were overwhelmed by fear and chose to choose to navigate their fears without god and those who chose to walk with god and to navigate their fears with him At this time in Israel's history, we come to about 701 BC, so 27, over 2700 years ago. And the king at hand was King Hezekiah. And at this point in Israel's history, as they had just, there was a major world domination that was called Assyria. And this is kind of the map of Israel and Assyria. But Nineveh was their capital city, and they were the largest and most powerful military force on the world at that time. The two major kingdoms in the world history were Assyria to the north and Egypt to the south. And right in between them stood this little strip of land called Israel with far smaller amounts of people than these two major world dominations. And God placed them right in the center of two major world empires— intentionally he chose to put them there number one it was good land if you uh you could feed and you could grow and you could flourish in this land and you could be blessed in this land but there was also a tenuous situation that they had to be placed in because in order for assyria to conquer egypt it had to go through israel in order for egypt to conquer assyria it had to go through israel and god said israel follow me love me find your greatest pleasure pleasure in me worship me and you will be a light to the nations I will show who I am to the rest of the world by how you love me and serve me in this land but Israel you turn your back and you walk away from me and you pursue other gods I will I will scatter you all over the world And that's exactly what happened in 722 BC. Assyria Assyria came down, took the 10 tribes of Israel, and literally scattered them all around the world. They worshiped other gods. They turned away from God. There was no king who served God. There's no king who had a heart for the Lord. All of them, here's the phrase, they did evil in the sight of the Lord by worshiping other gods. And so Assyria took them, and Assyrians were mean people. I mean, these were the worst of the worst. Evil people who took them and scattered them all around the kingdom and then took other people and put them in, in where Israel used to occupy those cities so that they could never have that national unity or that national flavor again of Israel. And, and we never see them coming back in force. That left two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, to the south. The leader was Hezekiah. He was 25 years old. He was a millennial <laughs> when he became king. And this king was different than all the other kings. He had a heart for the Lord. It says here that he was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. Here he is, David. David ruled 300 years before Hezekiah. That's longer than U.S. history. But yet, Hezekiah is linked to David because David was a man after God's own heart. And when God saw the life of Hezekiah, he goes, he reminds me of my servant, David. Hezekiah's real father was named Ahaz, and he, as the scriptures say, did evil in the sight of the Lord. He actually tore down um, uh, all the the worship of God, and he built up worship of all the other gods throughout the land. He closed up the temple, shut it down, ceased worship in Jerusalem, and worshiped all around the land. Never had a heart for the Lord, and so Hezekiah having a heart for the Lord, where did he get that if he didn't get it from his father? He got it from his mother. Abijah or abi as she's referred to here She had a heart for the lord and she probably discipled her son In what's important so that when he became king look at what he did He said he it says he removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the asherah Now what does that mean? Well high places were literally mountaintops where there was worship in ancient days, they liked to get closest to their perceived deities or their gods. And so they'd find the high places, and they'd build an altar. And they would look up to those high places when they were when they feared, when they had problems. And here are the pillars and the Asherah. The pillars were what men worshipped, and the Asherah were what women worshipped. And here, Hezekiah took them, and he tore them all down. There were other kings who were kings after the heart of God, but they only did it more locally in Jerusalem. Hezekiah said throughout all Judah, the high places are coming down. Because whatever highest in your life will receive your worship. Do you realize that same concept is today? No, we don't go up to Burdett's Mound and build an altar these days. But we have things that are higher, that are higher priority, that are higher thoughts than the thoughts of God in our own lives that we put up over God. Well, he broke them down. Look what else he does. He says he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. Here we go even more than a thousand years earlier to the time of Moses, where Moses was in the wilderness and the people sinned against God, so he lifted up a bronze serpent in the wilderness that whoever looked to it would be saved. And here they took that picture of God's deliverance, of God's salvation and they worshiped the serpent rather than the God. You know, we can do that. We can worship the things of God without worshiping God. We can even worship religious-looking items or religious-sounding concepts rather than the person in the work of jesus be like me saying here here's the cross bow to the cross worship the cross no we don't worship the cross we worship the christ of the cross the cross shows us a picture of his deliverance but it's not what we worship right so he took it because it was an object of worship and he smashed it into pieces and then he said it says about him in verse five look at that he trusted in the lord and uh, the god of israel so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. Here he is one of the most celebrated kings in the scriptures. Three chapters in Second Kings, four chapters in Second Chronicles deal, detail his life, and some of the book of Isaiah is written about Hezekiah. That's pretty good to get seven chapters in God's book about your life. That's not bad at all. It says, For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but he kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. Here it says, even in 2 Chronicles 31, it says, Thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did all that was good and right and faithful before the Lord. And as he was doing this, something happened. says, "'After these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib king of Assyria came and invaded Judah and encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them for himself.'" So here, it's kind of the American way to think about, if I'm faithful to God, he will be faithful to me. If I'm good to God, he will be good to me. If I bless God, he will bless me. If I remain loyal to him, he owes me a good life. He owes me prosperity when that happens.'" This didn't happen in Hezekiah's life, even though he celebrated as one of the key rulers in the Old Testament as one of the leaders of Judah. He's one of the highest, most faithful, good, and right kings. And what happens? His worst nightmare happens. His worst nightmare happens. Assyria that obliterated the northern tribes shows up at Jerusalem and they encamp around it. I stood in Jerusalem earlier this month And I looked over that valley where the Assyrian troops camped out, and there must have been about half a million to a million of them who did that. So it's a daunting force against this smallish city named Jerusalem. And Sennacherib calls out to them, on whom do you trust? Because Hezekiah rebelled against him And over the course of these 14 years Hezekiah built up his country again to worship God Over these 14 years he rebuilt the temple and got it all Opened the doors of the temple that his father had closed He restores the Passover And they celebrate the deliverance of God from Egypt They celebrate the salvation and and the power and the strength that's God's By the way, Hezekiah literally means God strengthens or God is my strength I like that name If I would have had a fourth son He probably would have been named Hezekiah Hishma Don't you think that could? Yeah That I chose We chose not to name One of our kids Harry That wouldn't be good Harry Hishma No that wouldn't work either But Hezekiah is a great name His name literally means God is my strength And my goodness Would that name be tested On its greatest fear The fear of losing it all When you have a force and a threat that's so much more powerful you than you right outside your gates So what does hezekiah do? He not only built his nation again to worship god, but he built up the walls around jerusalem He went and he looked and he said, why should, why in the world should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? So he looked for a spring that was right outside the city and he added a wall around that spring and he built a spring and he built a tower over that spring so that they could stand upon it and it would be a stronghold of that area. This is actually an artist's rendering when I was in Jerusalem that someone painted of that. So that tower that's right in the center there, he put guards over that and he diverted the water and he took that uh, and he took the rock that was there and he actually tunneled through the rock, having great and mighty men start digging with pickaxes through this hard stone, hard rock. And they started, it took them four years to do it, but they pickaxed uh, a channel from that spring into the city where the people could get water and they would choke the Assyrian army as they laid siege to this city and they would flourish the inner city of the city of Jerusalem. This month, I walked through that tunnel that was cut by Hezekiah and his men 2,700 years ago. This is what it looks like today. As I'm walking through that, it still has water going through it. As we walked through, the water started about up here and then it came down to your knees. And we just waded through that water 1,400 feet. They did it without modern technology and they met right in the middle. How in the world does that happen? How in the world does that happen? As you're walking, you can actually put your hands up on the wall and still feel the pickaxe marks from 2,700 years ago. Fascinating, fascinating place to go and explore. That's not all that he did by building up this wall and building this tunnel and protecting the city. He also proclaimed to his people, he said this, be strong and courageous, Second Chronicles says. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him, for there are more with us than with him. Hezekiah, stop right now. Did you see how many there are of the Assyrians right outside? I mean, we can count them. They're far more than we are. Unless, Hezekiah, you believe your strength is the Lord's. You believe that God is with us. Then there's more with us than with him. And that's exactly what he believed. Looks how he details it in verse 8. He says, With him is the arm 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 of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Why would people put their confidence in Hezekiah and a God they had not seen when they looked out and their eyes saw this massive force coming against the city of Jerusalem? Here's, how, here's why I think they did. And there's no charge for this, by the way. But here's why I believe it. I believe he trained them over the 14 years before this siege happened. He trained them to trust in the Lord. When times were good, when there weren't as many huge threats as this, he taught them, he trained them to worship God again, to find him as their strength, to humble their lives before him, to look to him when they started to worry and when they started to fear Because for them to have this massive threat, it just doesn't happen. Trust is not developed in a day. Trust has time and experience attached to it. All those years where he restores the temple, he restores the Passover celebration, he restores and reinstalls the priest in the temple to lead the people in worship, built a faith that was strong. And in his generation, he changed the faith of a whole nation. That's Hezekiah. So the king of Nineveh, Sennacherib, comes outside the gates and calls out, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria. I love this question. On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust? Trust that you've rebelled against me. This word trust in the narrative of Hezekiah is all over the place. Make your list as you read this story. Trust is all over it. And here he's saying, who do you trust in? By the way, when you worry, when you're afraid, when you fear failure, that's a great question to ask yourself. It comes from the threat itself, but it's a good, healthy question to ask yourself. Joe, you are afraid. Who are you trusting in right now? Good question. We need to know. We need to know. Because it will determine who and how we fear. So the representatives from Hezekiah's men go and talk to this leader. Rab Shaka is his name. What a great name. Rab Shaka Khan. I don't know. I don't know. So they go and they talk to him and they say, please. Someone just went like this, like they're embarrassed I even mentioned Shaka Khan in church. I'm sorry about that. Okay. But, uh, so, so they go and they ask the question, hey, please, don't speak in our language. The people up on the wall will hear you. Let's keep this between us. And they said, no way, no way. Don't let, hey, people, and they spoke in Hebrew, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. And they go, shh, stop it. You'll stir them, kind of like, if you read between the lines of that. And he goes, no way. And then he goes a little bit more graphic. Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Must have been Marines. Yeah. They just went out and said, look, that's what's going to happen. If you surrender to us, we'll take you and we'll take you back to Assyria and you'll eat good food, the food that we eat, and you'll drink good wine, the wine that we drink. But if you resist, look what you're going to eat. Look what you're going to drink. You can almost see the people going like this, but it says the people would not listen. I love it. Why? Because at that point in the area of the threat they were still willing to trust God. Your response to a threat will determine where your faith is. And so they called out, and they, what does, what does Hezekiah do when he hears these taunts? What does he... He prays. He prays. And you see this progression. He built up Jerusalem... He believed God and called everyone to trust God. And then when this threat finally came, when the Assyrians are sieging, besieging this city and have him surrounded, there's no way out. What does he do? He prays, he prays. Look what he prays. Look at verses 15 to 19. This is where we'll put down the anchor. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O oh Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God. You alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria, they've laid waste the nations and their lands. They have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the works of men's hand, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, look at this. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, for from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. I love this prayer. This prayer, as I've read it over and over this week, just comforts my heart, especially at times when I want to fear. And it shows the choices that Hezekiah has made to confront his fear of being overcome or fear of failure. And it's a plan for us. It's a pattern. These same choices of Hezekiah are choices of ours today that when we feel fear failure, we can choose to trust in God, or we can choose to trust in ourselves. Folks, we're here, we fear, because we already trust in ourselves. We're called with our fear to confront that fear with trust in God. There's five things that he chose. I want to just share them with you that I see in this passage. The first one is he chose when he feared, to worship over worrying. What you worry about will usually show you what you're worshiping. If you worry about finances, you usually have a tendency to put those on a higher perspective or a higher plane than God. If you worry about your health, it can be a picture that you're, rather than trusting in God, you tend to trust in how you're feeling. Worry shows us who we're worshiping. And here Hezekiah turns to the Lord and he prays. He prays with a heart for the Lord. And he says, look at what he says. O Lord, the God of Israel, a throne above the cherubim, you are the God. You alone for all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Wait. do you remember when Jesus taught us to pray last month? He said, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's something about knowing that God is over heaven and over earth, that he is the one, that even this small place in the world where we worry, even this small life called me, when I worry, when I fear failure, when I fear being overwhelmed... He is concerned, and he's Lord over heaven and earth. And we choose to worship him. We call him who he is. We tell him who he is. Who is this one that you place your trust, Sennacherib would say, and and Hezekiah would say, he is the God over heaven and earth. You are just a little man to him. I love this. Your view of God will determine what you worry about. We don't see that. We don't see that. Worry is a prayer request. Worry is just who we are. Worry has become our identity. But what if it wasn't? Who would be your identity? What if every time you worried, you used it as a platform for worship? What if worry drove us to our knees, like it did Hezekiah, to run to the temple of the Lord and pray to him? It is. Worry is placed in our lives to be a platform for worship. And it might be an invitation that every time you worry, God is saying, come on deeper. Come on back to me. Come on back. Find my love. Find my direction. Find my word for you. Worry is an opportunity to worship. And then the second thing is he moved towards humility over pride. And we see two physical things that Hezekiah does that show us his heart. Two external things that show us the internal reality. He, number one, tore his clothes. Now, I don't usually do that when I'm preaching. Thank goodness, right? Okay. But if I did, I'd literally rip my shirt to show I'm at the end of myself. This need is greater than I can do. I'm at my end. I'm out. do <laughs> you hear that? But that's not all he did. He put on sackcloth. What did those two acts mean? Number one. When you tear your clothes, you're basically saying whatever image I'm portraying by my clothing, and we still do it today, our image is projected by what we wear. The clothing you like says something about your interests and your opinions and your values. You go, well, uh, that's why I dress in black because I don't want anyone to know that dressing in black still tells us something about you. It does. And here's the king who had all the priests, all the royal robes on, he tore them off of him, and he put on sackcloth. That second thing, after debasing his image, he took on the clothing that a servant or a slave would wear. In other words, I'm low. I'm low. I'm at the end, and I can't do this. We don't have those acts to say that to God. We just have a heart. But I want to encourage you, it's worth it, It's worth it for you to think about an act that shows a humble heart before the Lord. He didn't do this to show off. He didn't just say, I'm more spiritual than everyone else. He did it because he really came to the end of himself, and he saw, I'm going to lose this all. I'm going to lose everything. I only have the Lord, but he is my greatest strength. So he tears his robes off, puts on sackcloth, and then he runs to the temple of the Lord. Love that. He runs to God. And he seeks the Lord in that temple. And guess what, who he finds in that temple is the one who built into his life and discipled him in the ways of God, Isaiah. And that's the third choice he made. He chose not to do this alone. He chose this to do this in community, not in isolation. And by community, I'm talking about godly people who are seeking God together with you. We see this pattern of the word of Sennacherib. Who are you trusting in? I'm going to make you eat your own dung and drink your own urine if you don't surrender. And you see see Elkanah, who the, the representative for Hezekiah. He tears his robes. He comes in sackcloth. You can almost see your heart rate go up as they rush to Hezekiah. What does he do? He tears his robes. He puts on sackcloth. And he runs to the temple of the Lord. And guess who they call out for? Call Isaiah. Get him here right now and isaiah comes and comforts him isaiah discipled hezekiah during his ministry and my goodness did he train a man to trust the lord you have no idea what god will do when you choose to disciple someone when you view life as not yourself but god his word and people and we have those three values, God's just going to lead us to other people. When I fear, my tendency is don't share that with anyone. People will see you as weak. People will see you as vulnerable. But here we got Hezekiah, who is just going, man, man, and put on sackcloth, and he humbles his heart. He basically says, I'm not strong. I'm weak. And he does this and he shows this to people. By the way, in leadership right now, all the research that I'm reading on leadership right now, what makes a good leader? Openness and vulnerability through difficult times. See, if you're a leader and your company's going through or your school or your organization or your family's going through a difficult time, for you to go, it's okay, it's just going to get better, try harder, let's get out there and knock it out of the park today. That's leading out of arrogance and selfishness and image. But if you go, things are worse than we thought. But here's a plan we're going to try. And I don't know how it's going to work, but we've got to work together. Do you know people endear themselves to you when you're open and vulnerable? Do you know the fear of every man in a marriage is that his wife would really think that he doesn't have the power in himself, that he won't be good enough, that he won't measure up. That's a longing... Most men I talk to, and yet we keep that from our wives. We don't share that openness. We don't share, man, I'm feeling, I'm feeling hurt by this. We just react. We either go anger or we pull back and withhold love. And that's not the way out. Isolation. We are not better alone than we are in community with other people. It's important who we choose to find out that counsel from, don't select them on Facebook. Select them through, through experience and through time and with trust. But once you find them, run to them and run with them in a time of worry. We've got to have community. Hezekiah had it. And then he chose reliance over rebellion. Reliance over rebellion. He chose to rely on God rather than to rebel against God. And, and by that, what I mean is this. If you're going to rely on God, you're going to have to rebel against this world. And if you're going to rely on what this world offers you, you're going to rebel against God. You can't have them both. I've tried to do both. They're diametrically opposed. There's the kingdom of darkness. There's the kingdom of light. They don't have parties together. They don't. They don't. And so if I'm going to follow God, it's going to mean that I rebel against all those other things and all those other alternatives and choices apart from God. It just is. It's like when I got married, I didn't say I'm going to marry her and all of her friends and anyone else that I'm interested in the future. No, I say to her and only to her. Trust, love, meaningful relationships make a choice. And with God, we got to choose to rely on him. When we worry, when we're in fear, we must rely on God or we'll rebel against him. And the final one is uh, perspective. Hezekiah, look at the end of this prayer that he says. The end of this prayer is a powerful, powerful statement. He says, So now, O Lord our God, save us, please, from his hand. That, here's the perspective, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O oh Lord, are God alone. It's a, when you pray for something, and you want something. So many of us pray selfishly or self-centeredly. God, I want this. Please give this to me. This is the longing of my heart. This is the dream I've had since I was 10 years old. Make my dreams come true. That's how we approach God. And really what we need to pray for is God so that more people would know about you please make this happen. Lord, if you were to heal me, I'll give you all the glory. I'll give you all the glory. I remember one person who's sitting in this room right now, Cindy Wynn, when she had ovarian cancer, uh, um, yeah, when she had cancer, and it was all over. We laid hands on her and prayed. I remember specifically after confessing my sins, I said, God, if you heal Cindy Wynn, we will give you all the glory and he did and we give him all the glory she is walking picture of the glory of god yeah and i have had others who god did not choose to heal and we still give him glory because he works through life and death to bring people to god that perspective, what, what perspective, what purpose, what higher good are we living for? This world is not about us. Everything that's happening, our threat, is ultimately not against us. It's against the Lord. And so he will fight our battles. He is the one who will lead us. He is the one who we're to depend on. O oh, Israel, O oh, church, trust in the Lord. So I'm over my time. Do you want me to show you how this ends? I know your stomachs are growling. Will you forgive me for going over? Okay. If you don't, you can leave. I'm just kidding. Don't leave. Don't leave. Hang on this. Because this is a great ending. What happens? Well, when he prays, God says through his prophet Isaiah, I have heard your prayer. I've heard your prayer. And this is what I'm going to do to Sennacherib. And the Bible, if you're reading it right now and you have it open in front, you'll see the margins get larger. And what that is, is God goes into poetry and he basically says, this is what I'm going to do, Sennacherib. I'm going to do this to you, Sennacherib. And he says, those threats against Israel were threats against me. He says, because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put a hook in your nose and a bit in your mouth and I will turn you back upon the way by which you came. I love that. Where do we put rings in noses and bits in mouth? Do we do that to animals, ox and horses? And that's what God said. You are just a little man to me and I will kick you back to your country. Then he says, therefore the Lord, says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or even shoot an arrow there or come with, before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, the same he shall return. And he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. There's Hezekiah being compared to David, a man after God's own heart again. Therefore, says the Lord, don't mess with me. Nothing. There will be no war. There will be no battle. There won't even be an arrow cast against this city. They will go back. And then the angel of the Lord, that very night, it says this. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. And parents stood on the top of that that wall, and their children peered over. And moms and dads said, what do you see? And all the kids said, we see dead people. (laughs) The sixth sense of the Old Testament Yeah, they saw that and they thought, who did this? Did any of us shoot last night? Nope. Were we shooting skeet? We didn't have guns, nothing. There wasn't anything. It was the Lord who defended his city. And the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, goes back and he goes into his temple and he worships his God. And as he's walking into that temple, his sons assassinate him. He dies. And not long after, Babylon comes and defeats Assyria, and the empire is gone. Who is the king of kings and lord of lords? And I ask you again, on what do you rest this trust of yours? That is a great question to ask yourself when you worry, when you fear. What are you worrying about? Who are you placing your trust? We have to trust in someone. It's either going to be ourselves, or it's going to be God. I choose this day to trust on God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day when we can be connected to 2,700 years ago and the history you had about a man, a king, who chose to trust in you when he was afraid. Lord, give us faith like that. Train us this day when we may not be going through a major threat like he did, but train us today to trust in you with the small things so that when the big things come, we have a pattern of trust move us to pray to you as our first response, not our last reaction. And may Jesus be praised. May the world know more about him than about us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.